0: Buddy, and welcome to the Made in Scotland podcast. My name's Dougie, and the whole point of this podcast is to delve into some of the fantastic talent that their little country produced in the eighties, and the nineties, and the two thousands. Uh, we're going to kick off our podcast with our very first interview, and it's with one of the artists that was in the intro music. There, I've got to say, it was quite a long intro. But really well worth it because of some cracking tunes in there. So our very first interview, which has been really an eye-opener for me, is with the iconic Jesse Ray. So let's have a listen to it. First part is about Jesse and his background up to the album The Thistle. And then part two will be the review and all the stories behind the videos and stuff that Jesse's done. And a little special treat at the end so grab yourself a coffee and enjoy and we'll catch up with you at the end of it. so here it is jesse ray and this was on location down in st boswell's where jesse stays so i hope you enjoy it part one hello and welcome to made in scotland podcast i am here with the cult hero funk ambassador to scotland mr jesse ray
1: Pleasure to be here, Dergi.
0: Jesse, thank you very much for your time. Um, looking fantastic as always.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, so the the main topic of of this podcast, the Made in Scotland podcast, is to chat about your album, The Thistle. Aye. Um, which came out in the kind of mid eighties for me, and it was one of the albums that uh, turned my head. You know, it was one of the ones I, I I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand more about the funk and that kind of stuff, and and you get a bit more about the artist that produced this album because mm-hmm. you're not just a singer and songwriter you also produce you direct you know the talents that you have just there's no i'm just it. a boy for the borders. <laughs> not when you read your, your your background you know so before we get to the album if it's okay if we could go back to when you first my question would be is how does a boy for the, for the borders get any funk how does that happen
1: I've no idea. I mean, you've picked up a a record the day, and I mind picking up a, an old P Funk for 99p in a jumble sale when I was about 15 or something. Right, 16. it was just when Parliament started it. Okay, so it was a Parliament record actually, uh, and I was fair impressed with the the band that were in it more so than Parliament themselves. George Clinton was obviously in Parliament, uh-huh. so that really got me into. But have I been into funk and soul? Have I had you know perfect rhythm and, and timing? So I figured that you know, that was the way I was gonna go on. But uh, it just all evolved from being in soul bands when I was at Skill and uh, then going down to London. And uh, how I got there, I realized that you know I had to get together with the best funk folk in the world, yep. you know. So I knew that I had to get to the States. So I not answered an advert in um, the Melody Maker for a bass player and singer for a heavy metal band. Yep. And I thought, oh well, you know, at least what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll get out there, you know. So I got out there to Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, basically, uh, I was stuck there for three years because I was working with a band called The Boys, and uh, they split up, and I was left in Cleveland for three years because I couldn't get my green card, and I couldn't go back. So in that time, I just saved my money from doing club stuff. Right. Going and playing all the clubs six nights a week, six sets a night. And uh, sneaking in my own funk stuff whenever I could. And then uh, I decided to get out of there and uh, go to Boston. Right. And uh, went to Boston, and in the elevator that was going up, I met this really colourful bloke called Bernie Worrell, and ah. he had a whole bunch of cassettes with him, and I had my cassettes in my hand, and he says, uh, oh, why don't you come up my room, and we'll just, I'll listen to what you're doing, and you can listen to what I'm doing, and that was the start of our friendship for all these years, you know, so Boston was the first place that I met Bernie Worrell, and then um, I went to the um, Sugar Shack that night, and they uh, I was definitely the only Scotsman in there anyway, <laughs> uh, but uh, that was the first time I'd heard Parliament Funkadelic live, and uh, when I did, uh, I knew then that, you know, this was, this was the combination of things that what I wrote and what I wanted to play was going to be, yep. so that was really the start of it. And then uh, I met through Bernie, I met this woman called Ruth Copeland, who used to be Sly Stone's woman. And uh, she asked me to join her band. And I joined her band and wrote songs for her album, which is Take Me to Baltimore. She's free Baltimore, but well, she's actually for the north of England, the lassie. Right. Uh, but she uh, wanted me to do this album. So I did this album uh, Take Me to Baltimore. And that's where I started to meet the other boys that Bernie worked with that he hired for the record and uh-huh. It was the first time I met Steve Jordan, uh, he'd only been, uh, he was only about 15 or something like that. Uh, and uh, a lot of the other players that were in the parts of the Parliament Funkadelic lot. So yep. they were the band and then I did the backing vocals with Daryl Hall for Hall Notes for the album. And that was really the first album that recorded no I wouldn't say that I wrote a tune called Win or Lose for her this, uh, for Ruth. Eh? this was for Ruth eh for Ruth, Ruth yep. Copeland yep. but uh, I didn't really it wasn't it wasn't really what I was going to be doing with the funk thing mm-hmm. but then Nairobi Silke I met through yeah. Bernie and Nairobi Silke and myself we started the Space Cadets It was it was just really where I wanted to go with things, and we had Taro and Lambkin from Parliament Funkadelic playing the, uh, the drums, and T M Stevens uh, playing bass. So really, it was just a exciting kind of time in New York at that time. Yep. You know, nineteen eighty two was sort of like, you know, I was I was having to, I'd already been making music videos since nineteen seventy nine, so. Uh, I kind of anchored in New York for a while because uh, I had a day job for a while as a a runner on Wall Street in cotton commodities. And uh, I just saved my money and and went toward the production and started the Scotland Video USA uh, in New York as a company for make music videos. Mm. But we're too early. Too early it was I would say two years too early. I mean, this is before the birth of MTV ah. as well, isn't well, it? Well, MTV, I just after that MTV kicked off. So um, I have a really good friend, uh, uh, Nina Blackwood, from MTV, and that, and uh, she was, you know, she was sympathetic to because there wasn't really enough funk and black stuff on MTV. Yep. Um, your standard folk like Michael Jackson and who crossed over got on it, but ah. basically. There was no place for the Space Cadets on something like that, you see. Mm -hmm. And I was already, you know, pioneering music video and getting some awards and stuff like that. So I just knew then that, as far as I was concerned, the Space Cadets were the direction that I wanted to take the Scots P Funk.
0: the space cadets did you go to strange parcels was that run
1: about? no that's was that a that. whole different thing on that a uh, how that happened was a uh, funnily enough you know all, all these folk know each other yeah yeah, played each other but my my friendship with bernie whorell meant that skip mcdonald and doug Wimbish from on you sound and they were the sugar hill guy they got to play with Bernie through me and what we were doing. Right. Uh, so and it's a whole big network. Aye. And that led to On You Sound in London, where Agent Sherwood was... Uh, he was he was bringing them over all the time to do tours and get in the studio and all that stuff with Keith LeBlanc. Right. And uh, that was a sort of like the British funk version uh, of P-Funk, if you like It was more dub- funk, uh-huh. you know, but it was the same kind of thing. And that's really how my friendship uh, uh, got together with these lads.
0: Some of the tracks you listen to now that, that you have written, late 70s, early 80s, they're like 15 years ahead of the game.
1: Ah, uh, have I been ahead? That's been the problem, actually, because I've been too far ahead. Mm-hmm. It was like Scotland Video in New York, you know, it was two years before the industry is such, so we suffered for at the wrong time when um, on the stock market they put these wee ping-pong games remember the wee ping-pong mm, yep. they called video they called that video and they got it mixed up with music video uh-huh. and the market had dropped out of uh, these ping-pong things so we suffered for that so really i was just you know having a you know having a uh, an office on broadway and and folk working and it was just too early it was uh, a right. shame you know but uh, I didn't regret anything, you know. I, I was still experimenting with all sorts of subliminal video and all sorts of things to see that I could, you know. But financially, we were just too far ahead. It was it, yep. it hurt us quite a bit.
0: So when did you meet um, Roger? Does Roger Troutman? Roger Troutman. come in later on.
1: Actually, that was a disaster. The, the what what happened was um, I came back here get married to audrey the, uh, who's the drummer in over the sea mm-hmm. and i decided i was going to live in the, sc- in the borders here again and because i'm free Bosels originally right but my dad was headmaster in Bosels and then i went away um and i found this place this uh, old school it's pre-1790 oh. and i remembered it and my dad actually took me here on the last day of the school uh, so i remembered it for that as well but I needed a base here that I could do a lot of my work because uh, when I'm writing, I didn't listen to radio, didn't listen to TV, and yep. basically everything I, all the ideas I get are for nature. Mm-hmm. So I built this. Uh, well, this place wasn't like this. This was just a wee. I did the ISD album. This was just like a wee outdoor bit. Yeah. But basically, there's no line between nature and the funk. You know, I, I like to try and, you know, so that was my base. So really, um. Uh, what happened was the... What was your question again? It was the... When you met. When did Roger, Roger come in Roger. your story? So what happened was, when I came back here to get married, one uh, of brothers worked to sign me directly for the States. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I ran into problems because I was now returned over here instead of being in America. And the, r- the residency rules meant you had to sign with WEA. Right. So I thought this is not going to work because you know the, the Warner Brothers wanted to sign me directly, but uh, I my plan was to you know live here, go out and tour, mm-hmm. and come back here. Basically, that was it. Because it's a funny thing when you're in America. If you're in America like I was for three years, you're a novelty to begin with, but then that's it. You know you're you're you sort of live there. Yeah. Whereas you're touring, you know, folk are excited about you coming, and you're only there for a wee while and You know, you get better press and media coverage, you see. So anyway, I get this uh, call from uh, Rob Dickens and Max Hole down at WEA, and they said they wanted to come up here and see me. And they came up in the snow and hammered on the door, and I'd already been filming the thistle myself. I'd been raising money and getting investment into my, my work. And they'd seen Over the Sea, and they wanted to sign me for that, you see. So, I knew it was going to be a disaster because there was no way, that was the reason I went to America in the first place, was that there was no way the English were going to mm. accept uh, me at all, No, you know, it just wasn't going to work, you know. I mean, but America is your market, was your market but they mean? said to me, look, we're going to do the album, we're going to, maybe it was like about three or five albums or something like that, going to be a good deal. I said, you kind of get your hands on my video though, because I own all my my video rights. And I said, so okay, well, you'll get your video rights. Uh, But you're going to have to come through London to do this. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. Mm -hmm. So that was really the start of the end, because I knew that it was going to be a disaster, the Thistle album. But I I went, I put up with it. And then uh, the good thing that came out of it was that Rob Dickens said, I want you. W- there's an American artist that's doing really well for Warner's right now called Roger Troutman and Zap and I want you th- him to be your producer. Yep. Well, I'd never heard of Roger or Zap, you see, oh, okay. and because I was P-Funk in New Jersey, in Plainfield, New Jersey, and you know, all that lot, so I didn't know about. I didn't know about Dayton. I didn't know anything about the artists came out Dayton or nothing. Uh-huh. So I thought, well, but then they sent me over "Computer Love," and when I heard that. Uh, the production was just so great. Yeah, it's a great it was song. Just yeah. such great production, and I just says, "Okay, I'll go for it." <laughs> So I went out to Dayton, Ohio, and uh, the me in the Stouffer's uh, Inn in Dayton, uh, the worst place for me, though, like uh, uh, one of these modern at the time then building with with the uh, the smoke windies, and you couldn't open them. Right. Right. <laughs> so after about a day the chair went through the big glass (laughs) window. I I just, it it wasn't going to work at all because as a singer, i have to sleep in this fresh air. Yep. Uh, Air conditioning kills me, you see. Uh And it was warm then as well on top of it all. So, uh, anyway, I waited around a couple of days in the hotel and then, uh, this limo came to pick me up and the bloke that was in it was such a nice lad, an older guy. And we're driving over to the studio and he's telling, and he introduced me as Roger's dad. (laughs) Right. And he said, Do you know, I was based at the Holy Loch during the Second World War night. So he was telling me oh, all right. these stories about Scotland. Right. I just arrived there, you see. I thought, oh, this is this is pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, so I get to the studio, and that's where I meet Roger for the first time. And he was so animated and so excitable and, and talented that I thought, well, this is going to be good because mm-hmm. they've got their own uh, laboratory, the, the Troutman Sound Labs. Yep. And uh, you know Roger's happening. You know he was he was doing all this stuff.
0: Do, yeah,
1: yeah. But he was happening too much, unfortunately, because you know. Next thing I know, I'd be back at the hotel and I get a call saying, right, I'll be back in three days, four days. I'm away on tour doing this and that. Right. Oh, Christ. So I'm walking up and down the hotel room for a couple of days at Mm -hmm. a time, you see. But anyway, the thing about it was that uh, Roger and me hit off straight away. You know, He appreciated, you know, he he did no prejudice against me with a helmet or nothing. Uh And his dad had taught him all about Scotland. But, of course, it had been the Brigadoon version of Scotland. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's what I call it. That's, you know, a, that's a <laughs> funk. But uh, it was all, the family were wonderful, and I thought the, the people in, in Dayton were great, you know, and the Afro-American folk in Dayton were just God-fearing and honest, and they were like borders. They were right. great, you see. So I was part of the family. I got over invited to the family, and um, uh, we got on the album, and it was just constant day and night working. Yep. Uh, Roger just, you know, he'd fall asleep with his guitar and he was always so smartly dressed, you know. So we were always the same. We never, we never, we'd never want a pair of t shirts or when of. When you life. see some of the footage that you've
0: got online with yourself and Roger in the studio, a bit of mixing and stuff going on, you can see the energy in the room. You can see oh, how I, much he's enjoying everything, you know. It's
1: well, you see, Roger uh, fed off people that, are, that have got talent and who, uh, are genuine and who he gets excited about and it was mutually that way and yep. when you've got a producer you've got to have somebody like that uh-huh. you see after everything else so the one thing I would say about the Thistle which was really a shame was that I, I got a bad dose of flu and uh, I had to sing basically with the flu so right. I've never been happy about my vocals on that album at all because they were so thin and and uh-huh. nasally, you know. But I was I was pretty ill when I was doing some of that mm-hmm. stuff. Anyway, I got I got through it all, and then I said to Roger, um, "Right, is that everything you're needing from me now?" And he says, "Yeah, I'm going to send you back to Scotland." And, you know, I'm I'm happy with everything. Well, I mean, there's a wee story there because uh, when I flew away and I got back here, uh, Roger called me up and he says. Aye, Evan's fine. And I says, Right. And then Tony's voice and that. But we are accidentally raised a lot of your vocals. But it's oh. okay. I've got the roughs and I've got all the rehearsal vocals and that. I'm I'm quite happy I'll manage to put it all together. And I said, Well I right. can fly out again. Oh no no I'm fine, you know, what? you'll sort it out. And what had happened was it was just unfortunate. But what had happened was that um the reason that Roger Troutman stuff was so great was that, because this is analog then, you see, mm-hmm. so, of course, noise, you get noise from instruments and all there is to it and that. Um, he had his little cousins and nephews, you know, learning and working in the studio as well. And what they used to do, what Roger used to do was, you know, he'd, get, he'd le- leave his cousin or whatever, to go down the tracks, cleaning up between things, you right, know, erasing between. Stuff to clip so that when it came out, that's why it was so crystal clear and uh, and, right. and, and you know, so there was no, you know, there was no sort of noise for the amp for a bass or something like that. It was all clean. You uh-huh. see, but unfortunately, what Roger used to do was he used to, you know, he recorded and recorded and recorded and recorded because you run out of space and you make a. He'd make a um, a slave master of that, and he'd record on that as well. But then he'd start recording, like if it'd be vocal tracks, and then there was huge areas where there was none at all. He'd put in a lead guitar part or something yep. like that. So what must have happened, I think, because I never really found out exactly, but I think what happened was that um, you know maybe the the engineer or whatever had been cleaning up the tracks between his guitar parts, and of course it was one on my vocal mm, track. Right. Or you see, but it didn't matter. I mean, uh, what he did with the Thistle was was what Roger would do. And, uh, you know, he uh, I'd like to think that, in my own way, BE YOURSELF! I kind of influenced him in the, a lot of the way yeah, he yep. sang. I know that when he came back, when he came to Scotland, for I jump of it in 1986, when he came over here and I was filming, uh, when I dressed him up in the full uh, Scottish uh, uh, military mm-hmm. outfit, he loved that, you see, yeah, I totally loved it, he wouldn't he wear a kilt, but he just swung the, the, the spawner on the side of his leg, you know, that was oh fine, right. he wore trues, <laughs> trues. He would, he said, that was the only thing I drew a line was, he wouldn't wear a kilt, but I think it was just because he he'd wee thin legs, but that was <laughs> but that didn't matter, but anyway, uh, so Roger, uh, he totally got into it all, and uh, I remember seeing him when I was down and uh, when he went, for here down to London and he was doing a show and all of a sudden this kind of plastic helmet appeared he was wearing and he had a, like, a military jacket on and he had a radio mic which he hadn't been using before Right, and he was doing what I do, running into the audience yep. and, and all that stuff so I'd like to think that Scotland had a nice pleasant influence on yep. Roger Troutman as well. Well that's know? it, if
0: it's two artists bouncing off each other. That's what it's all about you're, you're, you're i got why? things
1: for him and yep. He picks up on things for me, and mm-hmm. that mutual respect and uh, admiration is really what it's all yep. about. Aye. Before we jump into the, the Thistle album, I was wanting to just go through
0: roughly track by track because obviously the videos that you've made, and you, you briefly mentioned then that you'd funded a lot of them yourself and stuff. And back then, to fund the videos yourself must have been a huge financial commitment as well. Huge. You know, huge. So before we get into that, is there anything
1: you want to. The Thistle's not finished yet. I ran out of money for it. Right. I got a 55 grand And I just couldn't I couldn't afford it I mean it 55 grand In
0: the early 80s Is like
1: Quarter a million These days well, Maybe not quite as much But almost You know Aye So it was a lot of money uh, And At that time I told you we and me We were deteriorating together uh, It wasn't working out Like for instance When I mean, we jumping You're that kind of girl um, You know That was a tune I wrote with, Oni McIntyre for the Irish White Band yep. Um But if you're a if you're a pioneer like me in music video, you have different uh, rules, and regulations, and standards that you do yourself. And I knew that you know the industry when I when I when I was doing articles in Billboard, and I had uh, Clive Davis from Arista Records on the other page saying that music videos would never sell records and all the rest of it, and I was saying saying it was the future uh-huh. and all that stuff. And you're running up against that all the time so um i i decided that you know i'll put how i write things when i write a tune i write a soundtrack for yeah. a video at the same time so i always work with the instrumental and i'll only work with the instrumental and not put vocals in it at all and that was really um you know the way that i work so it, when it came to tunes Uh, that kind of girl was a song, I never wanted a video for it, because when you play this song, it's a pleasant song, but it's a nice, smooth... it could mean anything, Uh, so anyway, I was supposed to be doing, after the disaster was getting knee-deep, to use a p-funk term, um, uh, after they didn't do much with Over the Sea, and after, uh, uh, you know, I had the thistle, and uh, they weren't; they had no idea how to market this thing at all or, uh-huh. or, or, or the rest of it. The The big b- fallout with them was that up at Scott's View there, I had built a 360-pound metal box to go underneath a helicopter like a pendulum. Yep. And I was using this for inside-out because they wanted me to do inside-out. So I said, fine, I'll do inside-out. So I had about two weeks or a week and a half before I'm filming it because eh, I had Bernie over and Warren McRae and Steve Jordan and we're all up at the top of Scots View and all that stuff I uh-huh. said oh we decided we want that kind of girl now instead of Inside Out and I said wait a minute i spent all this money already my own money mm-hmm. and you want me to change a song two weeks before I'm about to film it the completely different song that was the kind of Problems are run up against in ignorance in the music industry about music video. Yep. So that, you know, if there's like no planning have... and all that stuff. So that kind of girl was just, as far as I'm concerned, was a disaster of a music video. I completely got lost in it because mm. I, the formula was gone. I got my formula I knew exactly what I was doing inside out, in and out the band and then through the River Tweed and up at Edinburgh Castle and all this stuff. So uh, I knew that was going to be the end of dealing with that. Do you major think the acceptance
0: of uh, the combination of music video and uh, and the songs would have been looked at differently in America with, with Warner Brothers?
1: Aye, ah, right. oh, totally. Would they would have just let me get on with it. They would have right. and no interfered. As soon as they started interfering with my work, like they did there, it cost me money. Uh-huh. So I'd already spent, you know, about twenty grand in preparation for that filming. And they just couldn't understand it. It's just not a problem. You can just do a different tune. Well, no, I can't. I mean, I've built this helicopter. I've got a helicopter, you know. Yep. It's fine for having drones and all that stuff now. But I had a 360-pound metal box coming straight at the artists, mm-hmm. you know. We, we can pass... The some some the of the feeders. footage
0: you can see, you're, you're
1: jumping out the road right no, at the I, very end. So I, <laughs> I did a couple where, I actually, <laughs> I did with the Dugs, the top there. I, let, I said to the... Because I was walkie-talkie all the time, with the, because I was directing it, obviously. Uh, I said to the, the helicopter pilot, I said, no, you know, you, you've got to try and nail me. And that's <laughs> the whole point of it. It's up to me to get out of the way. But you've got to think about it like a weapon, this thing. Right. And I, I need you to attack me, basically. <laughs> so there was one point, yeah, when I was kneeling right down, I had the dogs. And it just missed the nose of one of the dogs. But... I just got up at the last minute and let it flee. Yeah, 'cause
0: that uh, you can just see you jump out the road. Aye, is that just at Scotch View then? Aye. Is yeah, that
1: right? Okay. Right. <laughs> so I didn't want to know. I didn't want folk to know how I filmed it. You see. Yep. Because 'Cause you'd never figure that one out. No. You no. couldn't have a plane do that, and you certainly couldn't do it, kind of go through people with a helicopter. No, no. So, um, so all that work, I just knew. Oh no, you know this is just going to be a disaster. Uh, so it just took me years to get out of the deal basically mm. and it could have been such a success if i'd been able to i might even had remixes i might even had been able to put new vocals on some of the mm-hmm. stuff in the states
0: yeah but not back here no no no
1: it meant we you know i i uh, um virgin had made an offer for me as well with the uh, uh, ronnie garr right and you know i would have gone with ronnie you know but the lawyer said to me look this is a pretty heavy deal here and you're gonna get Quite a bit of money, you know, the rest of it and that. So you'd, you'd be better to go with that. You uh-huh. know? But I was quite happy to work with Ronnie Gar and, and Virgin. They wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have interfered like. Yeah. Well, that's it. Once a record company interferes with the artist, then you, you've. It's detrimental you, yep. to both mm-hmm. you. You know, even if you think products, you're getting art no, folk. No, I remember I went down to London and I went in there with Alan Campbell, my manager at the time, and Billy Mackenzie was there and they were having a go at him, and I thought, here we go. Anyway, so, Billy came out of the office... And uh, he was fuming, and this was him. That was it. And uh, he'd said to them, well, listen, you can do this for me. He said, I want a taxi to get back home. <laughs> so uh, they the sent her in a taxi that day, but unfortunately, what they the didn't came was, it was Dundee was his home he was talking Hi. about. <laughs> uh, so they kind of like, there was a kind of, I hope this Jesse is not gonna be like this, kinda. Uh, just a know. bit of disrespect for Ah well they didn't have much respect for Scots. No, no. They had none at all whatsoever actually. If you're talented in a band, what they wanted to do was take you out of it and then leave the rest of them to shrivel and shrink away. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, you you're stuck together uh-huh. as a band, especially if you come through up north, you know. Mm.
0: So just if it's okay, Jesse, I'll just go through the, the thistle album itself. Aye. Um so this one I've got here is the, the 2014, the Dave Turner. Aye. The one that you've done with Dave, so... Yep.
1: I, I'm i glad, we'll, you see, what we did was we put the original Over the Sea soundtrack on it. Uh-huh. Because the, 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 you asked me about Roger. Well, Roger, you know, Roger obviously is my producer. He wanted to do the very best for me. But it was also, because he'd been paid by WEA... You know, they'd make requests all the time that really they'd bypassed me on, right? Right. So they insisted on things like... I didn't know it at the time. I found it out. But they insisted on, oh, you're going to re-record Over the Sea again. And I'm saying, well, Over the Sea's perfect. I'm the no one to re- re-record it. Just take it, the one on the video and, and put it on the album. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no. They wanted me to... They wanted Roger to do all the parts again. And then I said, hang on a minute. I've done all the filming with everybody playing this stuff that I'm using. I can't have somebody else playing the parts yep. again, you know. Oh, they went on about it and all the rest of it and that. And that was... I was getting into bother with them. I was getting a bit fed up with them, with this yeah. side of it. Roger, being Roger and being the producer and being paid by WEA, you know, he wanted to please the boss as well, you yep. know. Right. So, and Roger's funny because Roger, uh, you know he was a fantastic guitar player but he thought he was the best in the world you know right. so anybody that was on the album there he thought he could do better right, right. you know he, he didn't he, he had respect for them I mean Hiram Bullock that played in, in, in Over the Sea as far as I'm concerned was one of the greatest guitars guitarists ever he was mm-hmm. he was I met him through a Saturday Night Live he was in the band and David Letterman show right so he was a, a brilliant guitarist but Roger wanted to do new guitar on Over the Sea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to re sing it again. And I thought he had the flu as well. So I just, heart wasn't in ens- doing it again. I just, because right. I was, you know, I'd worked so hard and, and, and paid for my own recording of Over the Sea. And uh, I was, you know, that's what I wanted, you know. Yeah, um, so yeah. we ran into these problems. So what happened was that uh, Roger replaced. A lot of the parts, and but there was certain things when I sat down with him and explained to him, look, I even showed him the film footage of, for instance, Bernie Warell on the pl- on the train mm-hmm. playing the parts. I said, well, you know, you're not going to play the same part again, and you kind of take him out, you know, uh, and you certainly kind of take him out in Russia and things like that. So, uh, but he understood Roger, so yeah. he compromised. Aye. He compromised with them, kept them quiet and happy, but with me. I, I was a stipular on saying, look, these guys are staying because I've already spent a fortune filming them on trains and stuff. Yeah. I'm not going to start taking them out just because we want a different well, mix. Yeah. You know, so that was one of the problems I ran up against. When you think of the
0: the lineup of musicians you had on the Thistle, you know. They, they all came from, they were all amazing. Great musicians. Great musicians. You no know, you've got Oni McIntyre on your bass,
1: I think, during it. Uh, guitar. Guitar, sorry. Um,
0: Lester Troutman.
1: Lester Troutman, definitely. A uh, fantastic drummer. And Harim, yeah. as you
0: just mentioned as well, he was on Aye. guitars.
1: And then you had Bernie on the
0: keyboards and yeah. yourself singing. It was like coming together, as you said earlier on, we, we, we all knew each other. Aye. So you could all kind of... He was working different projects at the same time, and, and Bernie had worked with some major artists as well. Loads and loads of work with Talking Heads. Oh, you know, through uh, the well, years. he made
1: Talking Heads. Yep. I mean, he brought in the P Funk guys, that the really. Mm-hmm. The, when they went out on the road with the, the burning down the house and all that stuff, it was Bernie's keyboard that that fast keyboard in it that really made the tune. Yep, but when they were out on the road. Basically, had the Brides of Funkenstein. And so the, the, it was like a P-Funk version. And interestingly enough, uh, David Byrne and that lassie and, and the other guy, they were actually art school in Rhode Island uh, and they used to sneak into the P-Funk concert. Ah, they never right. played an instrument in their life before. Right. But after they went to a P-Funk concert in Rhode Island, mm-hmm. they started learning. How to play. Right. And so a full circle happened later on obviously when Bernie asked Bernie to join Talking Head.